And all that stuff is engineered to hit the physiological bliss point in your reptilian brain without giving you enough nutrition to feel satisfied. It's an outside force that is designed to break your hung hungry and full meter and get you searching for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container. What's going on, y'all? Welcome back to the Struggle to Strength podcast, your source for real life application on how to turn your struggles into strengths in all things mind, muscle, and money. Companies develop food and engineer food to make money and they make money by getting you to buy the food and they get you to buy the food by getting you to eat the food. It's wild that not only are they period. engineering food. Yeah, period. It's wild that not period. only are they engineering Your health has nothing to, make, to do with it whatsoever. It has nothing to do with it. It's all about money. And it's, it's wild to learn not only are they engineering it to make you want to eat it, but also to keep you from feeling full from eating it. Like scientifically, they're doing this shit. So we need to learn how to overcome this. Glenn had some really great insight and strategies as far as understanding why you want to eat certain foods and understanding why you want to keep eating or binge eat or overeat or why you're obsessed with food. And the, the strategies he shared are like super simple. And they apply not only to food, but like every other aspect of your life. If you're a reactive person and you react, whether it's food, whether it's in conversation, whatever it is, the things that we talked about today are massively helpful. So th I, this was a great episode, man, honestly. Yeah. Um, I, I was pretty fascinated by it. Um, let's see. Gl Glenn also has, so in, in addition to some strategies for us to incorporate into our lives to improve our relationship with food and you know, stop us from overeating and binge eating. He also has some really good free uh, giveaways at the end of the episode. Mm -hmm. So y'all stay tuned at the end of the episode. This one's probably one you're going to want a, a notepad for. I took a lot of notes during this conversation. Um, but yeah, this is a phenomenal conversation. So I hope y'all enjoy it. I hope it's helpful. If it is, let Glenn know, let us know, reach out. We'll talk to you guys soon and we'll see you inside. This is a really good topic to talk about this time of year as we head into the beginning of the year. We get all the New Year's resolutions that typically are overly restrictive and lead to poor relationships with food and whatnot, as well as yep. for myself coming out of a contest prep. I noticed some weird behaviors around food that I'd like to learn a little bit more about. So Glenn, I'm excited to have you on and learn more yep. about you and what you do and uh, learn more about what we can do. So um, I guess to kick things off, Glenn, you're you're a PhD, right? Now, what is that? PhD, in? not MD, in clinical psychology. Okay, great. What's and, the difference? What's the difference yeah. between PhD and MD? Um, well, a PhD has four or five years of training in talk therapy and psychological research. Um, I went to a scientist mm -hmm. practitioner program and an MD, like a psychiatrist, usually have four years of medical school and then one year of specialization mm -hmm. in psychiatry which has more to do with medication than talk therapy, although they do a little talk therapy too. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. So I, I don't, I don't prescribe. I'm not a medical doctor mm -hmm. or, or a nutritionist or anything like that. How, well, that was what I was going to ask. How'd you get involved and decide to make overeating, binge eating and food sort of uh, emotional food? Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? James, you can cut this out. How did you? Yeah. How did you get in? How did you get interested, or become interested, or find yourself in your current niche as far as oh, emotion gosh. and food? I I trained to be a 
child and family therapist. I had a large child and family practice on Long Island. Um, my ex-wife traveled for business. I was married for 28 years and I didn't see her during the week most of the time. So I had a lot of time for a second career. And I was, um, I was consulting for big food companies like, you know, awesome. uh, Lipton and Kraft and Nabisco and those kind of, those kind of companies. Um, and most importantly, I had a problem with food myself. I had a serious problem. I mean, if you'd been to the Woodbury Country Deli in Long Island when, when I was in my 30s and 40s, they were probably out of pizza and Pop-Tarts because I got there before you. Um, so it was that kind of thing. I, I, you know, when I was a young guy, I figured out that because I'm 6'4 and I'm kind of genetically modestly muscular. If I worked out two, three hours a day, I could eat whatever I wanted to. And, you know, whole pizzas, boxes of muffins, boxes of donuts. And I thought it was a great thing. I didn't think it was a problem. Um, but as I got older and I was commuting a few hours a day each way to go to graduate school and see patients, and I was married and I was running a business, I just didn't have the time to work out like that. And I found that the food had a hold on me. I kept that duty the same way that I was. And it didn't bother me so much for the weight because I didn't gain that much weight at first, um, but it interfered with my thinking. I would be sitting with a suicidal patient and thinking, when can I get the next pizza, right? Or, yeah. or you know, working with a couple that just found out about a divorce and I'm thinking, when can I get to the donut store? Mm -hmm. and, and if you know anything about psychology, and it was always the most important thing to me to be a great psychologist. I come from a family of 17 psychotherapists and, and um, that was always the most important thing. It's not so much of an intellectual endeavor. You have to know a lot of things, but in the end, it's not like people present you the jigsaw puzzle of their life and you say, well, just rotate this piece here. And they go, great, doc, I'll get right on that. They have to love and trust you enough to leave your comfort zone and do that kind of thing, which means you have to be 100% present with them and lend them your soul. And I couldn't do that. Um, so I took the traditional psychological route, which says that um, there must be a hole in my heart. And if you figure out how to fill that hole in your heart, you won't have to keep filling the hole in your stomach. Mm -hmm. And I went to um, all the best therapists and I went to Overeaters Anonymous and I did a lot of soul searching, which was, um, which was beautiful. I mean, it, it made me a better person and more compassionate person, but I would get a little thinner and a lot fatter and a little thinner and a lot fatter and a little thinner and a lot fatter. And um, ultimately I started putting together that maybe I had the wrong paradigm, that um, this love yourself thin thing, as compassionate as it was and as interesting as it was, maybe that wasn't quite correct because I saw the big food companies spending millions, if not billions of dollars to pay rocket scientists mm -hmm. to engineer these hyper palatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and excitotoxins and salt and, and all that stuff is engineered to hit the physiological bliss point in your reptilian brain without giving you enough nutrition to feel satisfied. That has nothing to do with whether my mama dropped me on my head or her mother dropped her on her head. You know, nothing to do with a hole in my heart or being in a bad marriage. It's an outside force that is designed to break your hung hungry and full meter and get you, you know, searching for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container. And every time that you do, there's some fat cat in a white suit and a big mustache laughing all the way to the bank. And I said, okay, so that's, this is a different paradigm. This has nothing to do with any in-depth soul searching I'm going to do. 
um, I did this, um, I did kind of a study of neurology and I found out that the part of the brain that responds to addiction, not just food addiction, but all kinds of addiction, it's really the reptilian brain, like the, the brainstem. And the brainstem is like caught in this eternal college drinking game. It looks mm. at something in the environment and it says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? It's an eat, mate, or kill kind of thing. It's very primitive. There's no love there. Mm. And so, you know, when you're at Starbucks and there's a, you said you're not going to have chocolate during the week and there's a big hairy chocolate bar on the counter and, and you're thinking, gee, I worked out hard enough and, and I'm probably not going to gain what if I have it and I'll just have a couple of bites. Th that's your reptilian brain being active. That's not, that's not a lack of love. Um, it's, it's the, it's the mammalian brain and the, and the neocortex on top of that, that delays those impulses and says, wait a minute, before you eat, made or kill that thing, what impact will that have on the people that you love on your tribe and your family on the kind of person you're trying to be? Um, I'll, I'll bring this to a head in a second. So, so I said, okay, so there are these outside forces that are stimulating my lizard brain, trying to get me addicted. Um, the lizard brain doesn't know love. I'm trying to love myself out of this addiction, but the lizard brain doesn't know love. Maybe this has something more to do with being the alpha dog of my own mind than healing my inner wounded child. At the same time, I, um, I'd run a study. I was getting paid a lot of money to run these big studies for these corporations. So in the days when internet clicks were cheap, I set up a survey and I asked over 40,000 people over the course of about five years um, who were searching for solutions to stress, emotional stress, um, work stress, home stress. I asked them what they were stressed about and what foods they had trouble stopping eating when they went to them. And I found three interesting things. Um, one was that people that went to chocolate like I did, they tend to be a little lonely or brokenhearted um, or depressed. Uh, people who were going to soft, chewy, starchy things like pizza or bread or bagels, they tended to be stressed at home. And people who went to crunchy chips and you know, pretzels and, and, and salty things, they tended to be stressed at work. I thought, okay, that's really interesting. This was the last vestige of my trying to find an emotional connection, right? I called my mom, who's also a therapist and happened to have raised me. And I said, mom, I figured this thing out. I think that people that are running to chocolate are a little lonely, brokenhearted or depressed. And I just want to know, do you see a connection? Is there some, something in my youth that I would have gone to chocolate when I was lonely or brokenhearted or depressed. And she says, honey, I'm so sorry. And she gets a horrible look on her face. And I said, mom, it's okay. It was 40 years ago. I love you. I just want to figure this out. She said, well, when you were one year old in 1965, your um, father was a captain in, in the army and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam and I was terrified. And at the same time, my dad, your grandfather had just gotten out of prison and he had been my whole life, and I didn't know that he was guilty, and he was, and I was horribly depressed because of that. And I didn't have the wherewithal to hold you and love you and play with you and feed you healthy things all the time. So I got a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup, and I put it on a refrigerator in the floor. And I would say, go get your Bosco, and you go crawling over to it, and you suck up the Bosco, and you go into a chocolate sugar coma. And at that point, I figured if it was an emotional problem, that would be the eureka moment. If this was a movie 
we'd have a big hug and we'd have a big cry and I'd never have trouble with chocolate again. What actually happened was something a little nutty. Um, I started eating more chocolate because there was this voice of justification inside me. And it went something like this. Hey, Glenn, you're right. Our mama didn't love us and you're in a bad marriage and there's a great big chocolate-sized hole in your heart. And until you can find the love of your life and get out of this, you're going to have to just keep binging on chocolate. Yippee, let's go do it right now. And at that point, I switched my paradigm and I said, okay, maybe this is like me versus my lizard brand. Maybe I have to be like the alpha dog in my, in my the dog pack of my brain. And it's not without parallel because there are other bodily impulses that we have to control. Like if you see a attractive woman on the street, you don't go running up to her and kiss her, right? You, you can't just do it. I highly I suggest the, not doing that. <laughs> yeah. And I, <laughs> and I actually, once I got divorced, I started running on the way because I was <laughs> kind of shy, but, but, um, but you know what I mean? You, you have to, your testicles produce this urge and you can't just follow them. Um, if I had to really pee right now, my bladder was really full. I would say, look, I'm doing an interview with Josh and Travis. I can't, um, I can't run a pee. I'll take care of that later. I'm in charge, not you. Why is food any different? So I did this crazy thing and I never thought I was going to be teaching this. I didn't know I was going to write a book about it. It was just me uh, and a journal. I decided that I was going to call my inner reptilian brain my inner pig. I should have called it a food monster and then all these women wouldn't be mad at me, but I, I, I called it my inner pig. And I decided I was going to draw very clear lines in the sand so that I knew what a healthy behavior was and what a healthy behavior wasn't because I had to know when the pig was active, when it was trying to tell me to break the line. Mm -hmm. So my first line was, I'll never have chocolate other than on a Saturday. Um, and then when I would be in that Starbucks, and I'd hear that voice that says, Glenn, you worked out hard enough. You're not going to gain any weight. And you can might as well start your diet tomorrow. I would say, wait a minute. That's not me. That's my pig. Chocolate on a Wednesday is pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. And I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And as ridiculous as that sounds, as primitive, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a fairly sophisticated psychologist. I've been in, you know, the New York Times, blah, 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 blah. But it's kind of embarrassing for me to, to say that this is what started to work for me, but it is because it, it gave me those extra microseconds at the moment of impulse to wake up and remember why I made the rule in the first place. I wish I could say I followed it a hundred percent. I didn't. What did happen immediately was I stopped feeling confused and powerless. It, things got really, really clear for me. I could break the rule if I really wanted to, but it wasn't for some mysterious emotional reason. There wasn't some disease inside of me. It was just because I was deciding to break the rule. And then I, I did a little bit of a, a, a shift. I said, well, what if instead of trying to lose weight, what if I just flood my body with nutrition in a very slight caloric deficit? And my whole goal is to follow my rules. I, because what's what's been killing me all this time, and by the way, I was almost 300 pounds and my triglycerides were over 8,000 and the doctors were yelling at me all the time. Um, what's really been killing me is that I can't seem to follow my own best judgment. So I can't follow any diet because Monday morning comes and I'm at the Starbucks and I have the chocolate bar. So let me make rules that I will follow. And I made fairly easy rules to follow like you know, I'll always put my fork down between bites or I won't go back for seconds. And over time, my pig would have all kinds of reasons why I should break them. 
And instead of freaking out, I would just write them down. I'd say, okay, pig, why do you want me to break the rule now? I'd write it down and then I would dispute it. So if the pig says, it's just as easy to start your diet tomorrow, I'd say, wait a minute, that's not true. Because the principle of neuroplasticity says that if you have a craving for chocolate and you eat chocolate today, while you say, I'll just start again tomorrow, the chocolate craving will be stronger tomorrow, as will the desire to say, I'll start again tomorrow. So you'll say, I'll start again tomorrow, tomorrow. Yep. So if you're in a hole, you got to stop digging, always use the present moment to be healthy. And I went through that kind of analysis for all the things that my pig had, like 20, 30 things that it would say. Um, and then it would just start saying, oh, because it tastes so good. Um, and over time, I got control. And over time, I got thin. Um, not skinny, but, you know, relatively thin. Mm -hmm. And and um, as I was getting divorced, you asked me, all sort of because you asked me how I got into this. As I was getting divorced, I was a minor partner in a publishing company from all of my business dealings. And the CEO called me and said, you know, Glenn, we should really write our own books so we can attract better authors by showing them that we really know how to market them. And I said, okay, well, I have this journal I've kept for eight years about how I got thin. And it's a little crazy. It's me versus my pig. He said, I love it. Send it to me. You Turn it into a book and send it to me. So I spent the summer turning it into a book. And he calls me back a couple of weeks later. And he says, Glenn, donuts are pig slop. I don't eat donuts. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And he proceeded to lose almost 100 pounds over about 18 months. Um, so we published it. We both kind of know what we're doing because we had spent a lifetime in marketing as in addition to psychology for me. And um, but we didn't know how well it was going to take off. And now we've got 16,000 reviews and over a million readers. And, you know, people don't really recognize me by name, but in a bookstore, they'll come up and point at me and go, pig guy, you're the pig guy. So that's, um, that's why I got into this. That's great. And you, honestly, that answered a lot of the questions that I had about like what causes us to overeat, what causes food obsession. And you're, your explanation around uh, like the reptilian brain and the neuroplasticity of, of the choice of making a choice is very interesting to me because in a bodybuilding prep, we don't give ourselves the choice. So like your example right. of I only have chocolate on Wednesday, for us, it's we follow the meal plan, we eat what's on the meal plan, and we reach the goal. And the hardest part of that in a <laughs> bodybuilding prep is once you reach the goal, now you're on the other side of it. The reverse diet is the most important part to make sure that you can regain your health, that you don't accrue too much body fat too quickly, that essentially you can set yourself up for a productive next phase of your fitness journey, but we don't have the goal. So it's like, it's like if all of a sudden every day was Saturday and Glenn can have chocolate every day because every day is Saturday. Now, what do you do? That can be a really hard thing for us as competitors to go through because there's there's nothing that we're working towards so we need to reformulate our own rules and we yes. also need to keep a really close eye on uh like you had mentioned our relationship with food and understand the metrics of like am i breaking rules like is this a good behavior is this a bad behavior um not to label things as good and bad but mm -hmm. i think something that i've struggled with and i i think a lot of people in in our position do is how do we identify whether or not those behaviors are good or bad for us? Like, I guess that it's to, to bring things all the way back to square one, how do we define binge eating or overeating or um, food obsession? Like where, how can we identify that within ourselves? 
Well, um, I wrote an article in Psychology Today about this, because if you look at the DSM-5 definition of binge eating, like how do you actually diagnose binge eating, mm. it only fits about between what study you look at, like 1% to 4% of the population. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the World Health, World Health Organization statistics, um, you know, diabetes is up by like 80% and the rate of heart disease is almost tripled or something. I might be misquoting, but it's, and kidney disease is way up. And so obviously most people are eating beyond their own best judgment and could use some level of control. So I don't, I don't think the question is, do I have a problem or not? Because I, I don't think this is a disease. I don't think overeating is a disease. I think we have healthy appetites that are corrupted by industry for profit. Um, yeah, I don't a, think that was that a wild we, thing to think of. <laughs> That, this, yeah. that processed food is literally, I mean, we know this, it's literally engineered to make you want to eat it. But the, the you, you made a point that it's also engineered to keep you from feeling satiated. Which is wild. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. When you're eating a bag of chips, it probably comes from a multitude of assembly lines with slight variations in flavor, like minuscule variations in flavor, so that you stimulate the uh, variety reflex. Because in nature, slight variations in flavor would mean slight variations in micronutrients. So we've evolved to, to keep eating when we find slight variations. Uh, they do all sorts of things like that. There are chemicals so, they put in there to go No, on. no, I'm yeah. I, I'm, I'm just I'm very interested in this. So that sounds to me like it is completely on purpose. Like that sounds like purposefully engineered. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. That's I remember. I, I befriended, well, I was friends with before, but um, the, the VP of a major food bar manufacturer. And as he was leaving the company, he pulled me aside and he said, uh, Glenn, I'm really kind of ashamed about this, but um, the most profitable thing we did was to take the vitamins out of the bars and put them into the package, put the money in the packaging instead. They were expensive. They were making it taste bad. So we put the money in the packaging instead and we made it look healthy. So they made it vibrant and multicolored and diverse mm -hmm. because in nature, you're told to eat the rainbow because evolutionarily we have these buttons that say, when I see yellow and red and blue and, and green on my solid plate, I'm going to get a variety of micronutrients. So they, in this case, they're engineering it to, um, to prey on that without actually giving you the nutrition to, to feel satisfied. Yeah. Have you ever I been noticed asked that with like, like rainbow sprinkles? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah just like chocolate sprinkles versus rainbow sprinkles I, like i notice i have a different reaction to rainbow sprinkles like and they even go a step further and they say taste the rainbow yeah like, they yeah. just fall out with it yeah <laughs> they're yeah. not um, even trying to hide have it. you ever have you ever been asked to like come into one of these companies to help them like engineer the food to be more addictive is that has that ever no come well because remember I'm, I'm not a food scientist my my okay. i was an advertising researcher and i i specialize in observational research so um, I would do things like figure out what um, what emotional values a commercial was conveying without without saying it directly, or you know, did people choose? Uh, this is not a client, but they choose Poland Spring Water versus Evian Water because they they valued activity, or because they valued health, or because they valued prestige. Um, and I, I could discern those things with observational research without asking people directly. That that's what I did. Interesting. What's yeah. the why is food like that? Like, well, how did we find ourselves here? Um, you know, I I don't think that it's 
I don't think these people are evil. I, I think that they see their job as making food fun. And, you know, they, they, um, they're living in a very competitive market where the consumer votes with their dollars. And consumers don't really want to be healthy. They want to believe that they're being healthy. They're looking for what I'd call plausible deniability. So this bag of potato chips here was made with vitamin E oil from avocados, right? Never mind that the that the oil was heated to temperatures that created you know carcinogenic compounds or that you're ingesting acrylamides or that there's virtually no nutrition, but it's got a little bit of vitamin E from the soil, and then it's like the consumers have a get out of jail free card. So what they really eating want avocados, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like eating avocados, <laughs> right? <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. So it's. Yeah. When did this start? Do you think? Um, I'm just super interested, like how, because it seems like we're kind of just poisoning people for profit, and that doesn't really have a very like positive ending, you know. Um, There's a really good book called Sugar, Salt, Fat, Sugar, Salt, and Fat that goes over the history history of all that. It's um, it it really came into vogue. Like there was there was a lot of. Uh, politiz- politization, politicization. The the lobbying efforts and the people in power um, got in control of the food pyramid, and they kind of adjusted it for the profits of the industries rather than the um, rather than the health health of the consumer. And then, you know, as in the fifties and sixties, as people were studying this stuff, they figured out that um, you know sugar sells. Sugar cells and salt cells, and you know these chemicals sold, and it's just uh, who said this? Uh, I think Winston Churchill said, um, "Democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others, because democracy mm-hmm. doesn't protect us against um, this type of capitalistic greed." Yeah. That's probably the but best it, way of saying it, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's nothing perfect. You're just picking the 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 least the worst. worst. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but, but caveat emptor. I mean, we the you, you need a good offense. Yeah, you you can defend you can defend yourself with a good offense. You got to be proactive about this stuff. Yeah. So, before I I just have one more question, just kind of about like the history here, I guess. But like um, we talked a lot about like the the lizard brain. What what is going on in the brain? Like, why is it so hard? You know, why, like, what is going, like, uh, what is the lizard brain and like, what is going on when you're getting like addicted to foods or making bad food choices or whatever? Like, wh- what's the history of that, I guess? Okay. So that's, that's an excellent question. And I'm going to answer with my best understanding. Um, I believe that it's a misfiring of the sympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system mm-hmm. is the system that gets us fired up for action, um, fight or flight feast or famine, right? And in our evolutionary history, 99.9% of the time until the last couple of hundred years, food was pretty scarce. We, we, we didn't have supermarkets filled with all of these things. And so when you found a concentrated source of calories that um, was available for very little effort, your sympathetic nervous system would light up and say, get this before someone else dies, eat as much as you can. Right. Um, this is why, by the way, it's so difficult coming off of a bodybuilding competition yep. to stay in control um, because 
the bodybuilding is not really a natural (laughs) phenomenon. Yeah. 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 Um, And so if you think about it, if you lived in an environment where food was kind of scarce, as soon as it was available, there's a little mechanism in the brain that says, binge, get it, get it. It's it's natural. It's natural that we do that. Um, And so I think it's a misfiring of the sympathetic nervous system. It's a false starvation response. Um, And what, what you need to do to overcome it, we didn't talk much about that yet. Once you know when it's active, creating a rule lets you know when it's active. Because if I say, I will never have chocolate during the week again, then any thought that suggests I should have a chocolate bar is obviously my inner pig or my, my reptilian brain. So now I know that my reptilian brain is active. Now that I, I know that there's a misfiring of my survival response, I want to do the things that can put me into my parasympathetic nervous system. Mm-hmm. That's the system that says it's okay to rest and digest and strategize and think and plan. There's no emergency here. One of the one of the best things you can do is breathe in for a count of seven and out for a count of eleven. I'm not doing it now because it takes a while, but if you breathe in for a count of seven and out for a count of, count of eleven luxuriously, um, it's the opposite of what you would be doing if there were an emergency. If a hungry bear were chasing you, you'd be going. <laughs> So what you're doing instead is the type of breathing which tells your brain there's no emergency here. We don't have to go into action. Then I have people carry around a little pad and paper with them or a smartphone these days. And I say, well, why does your reptilian brain say that you should break the rules and binge? Because when you, when you create a rule, you know, when you've got the fortitude and discipline to use your best thinking and you've got the heart to your heart and soul to write down how you want to behave, then if you're going to break that rule, there's going to be something called cognitive dissonance. It's going to be emotionally uncomfortable to observe yourself breaking the rule because your higher self said you wanted to be this other person over here, but now you're acting like this. So there is a natural tendency to create a rationalization for why you're doing something different. And that's an opportunity to interfere with that greased shoot. So you ask your you ask your pig, why do you want me to break the rule? Uh, well, it's just one bite. It'll just be one bite. It's no big deal. Or it's actually kind of healthy. Chocolate has antioxidants in it, right? Or of course, you know, chocolate grows from a cocoa bean and that grows in a plant and therefore it's a vegetable. Um, that there are all sorts of rationaliz- rationalizations that might be going on. If you write them down, even if you don't know why it's wrong, the act of writing is an upper brain activity as opposed to this lower brain emergency response system. So even just the act of writing it down should calm you down so much. Then you take another 7-Eleven breath and you say, okay, why is it wrong? Uh, well, it's never just one bite, right? I, I, I never stop at just one bite. If it was only one bite, it, there wouldn't be that much that was wrong with it. But uh, I never stop at just one bite. And besides... One bite is the difference between who's in charge, me or you, Mr. Pig. And I don't want to be your slave. I want to be your master. I want to be the master of my own fate. I want to prove that I'm in control of my impulses, not you. It might be a little thing, but it's really important to me. So please be quiet and go back to your cage, right? So you dispute what the pig said. And the reason you do that is that the next time that it tries to say it's just one bite, it'll be a lot easier to immediately recognize and ignore that. It'll be a lot easier to do that. Um, and then you breathe again, and you can also ask yourself, 
well, why did I want to do this in the first place? What's the rule for? Is it because I want to be more um, emotionally present and free of digestive distress? That's because I want to win a bodybuilding competition. Is it because I want to be a tall, thin man and be a leader in the world and, you know, hike mountains and have a passionate relationship with a woman I love? What are all the reasons that I, what's my big why? Why do I want to do this in the first place? And what would I give up immediately if I binged right now? Like if I took the bite and then I had, you know, a burger to wash it down with and some pizza later, then I'm going to ruin my sleep tonight. I'm going to feel digestively distressed. I'm going to be disappointed in myself. I'm going to be thinking more negatively. You can add on to all this and build up your motivation to keep going. Um, but yeah, the answer to that's that's how I think the brain works. There's a misfiring of the survival drive. It's making a biological error. Mm -hmm. um, I completely agree yeah. with that. And especially like you mentioned in a bodybuilding prep where it's not a natural phenomenon. You know, we experience leptin and ghrelin being completely dysregulated. And even now, you know, six weeks post-show or so, um, you know, I still feel that I don't have the same satiety cues that they're, they're not fully back yet. So there are situations, especially over the holidays and whatnot, where I'll be eating and I don't, I don't really feel satiated at any point. All of a sudden I look around, I'm still the only one eating. It's been about 30 minutes. I'm the only one eating. And now I'm thinking, okay, now I realize this is a time that I should stop. It um, takes like three to said, six months. Takes three to six months to, for that to restore itself. Okay, what, that's what good I, to know. I was going to ask yeah. you how long I need to wait for it to come back. Yeah. When <laughs> is this going to end? <laughs> yeah, when am I finally going to feel satiated? Like I'm eating a good amount of food now. My my calories are high, um, but I still don't have those satiety cues. So when I'm off plan or when I'm in a position where I have a seemingly unlimited amount of food, like at Christmas dinner or uh, Thanksgiving dinner, and you know, or it's like an all you can eat buffet. Uh, I, I have to make note of, okay, this is my plate. You know, this is what I'm going to have. I have to go mm -hmm. into the plan and I have to stick to the plan. Like you said, that's exactly you have to make to rules. Do. That's exactly what to do. Yeah. Or um, if you still want to eat a lot of the junk that you couldn't have when you were in the competition, then you can contextualize it and bound it. So, mm -hmm. you know, I'm going to have a piece of chocolate cake on Friday mornings at the diner. Mm -hmm. um, yep. And, and, and see, Overeating recovery, addiction recovery with, with food, it, it's less about the particular food that you have, although some people have to give up sugar and flour and alcohol, but not everybody does. It's a lot less about that. It's more about moving your important food decisions from whim and emotion to your intellect. So any place where you used to get in trouble, any place where you overate, you use your intellect to define what a healthy way of being with food would be. And then you don't go by your feelings because feelings aren't facts. Most of us have a broken, hungry, and full meter. And until you get these things under control for four to six months and you get a lot of the junk out of your system, um, you're the I believe that the mindful quest to eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full, as much as I think it's a good idea, I, I think it's kind of doomed to fail um, given the types of foods we have in our society. And I'm um, you know, the patterns that people engage in. Mm -hmm. So I usually get people on a very regimented plan for four to six months. And then if they want to be a mindful eater, we start letting go of the rules little by little and, you know, focus on eating when they're hungry and stopping when they're full. But it's a very, very difficult thing to do right out of the gate. 
Absolutely. That's awesome. And and just to be clear, did you say four to six months or is that 46? No, four to six. Four to six. Four. I was like, I was like, by the summer, you'll be, you should, yeah. be <laughs> you should be okay in the summer if you, if you okay. tell that. Okay, good. Yeah. And I, I agree with that. I um, think, you know, this is a, uh, another like neuropathway uh situation where you know i think of this like water in a river you know you've been making these same decisions and you're creating a deeper groove a deeper river and yeah. it makes it easier to stay in that yeah. if you want to divert that river and start making new decisions it's going to take a while for, for that river work, to yeah. want to change its course and so you know honestly 44 to six months doesn't sound that bad that's yeah uh, that, that's what really good i'm just my last my last question is what, like, what do we do going forward? Like, do you have any um, tips or tools or techniques or anything for someone who's like, maybe, you know, just kind of in general, like, like navigating this world? It seems like uh, when it comes to food, there is, you know, very profitable, powerful sources that are basically <laughs> trying to <laughs> get you to make you know, unhealthier decisions, um, because they make more money. It's like, you know, how do, how do we navigate this type of thing? Well, I mean, I'm going to give everybody a free copy of my book at the end. Yeah. Um, but, but, but essentially what you want to do is start with one simple rule. Most people, most overeaters are also good dieters, but they make the mistake of dieting too hard and then overeating too hard. So they're on this kind of feast and famine roller coaster. You remember I told you about that evolutionary mechanism in the brain that says if calories and nutrition are scarce, then as soon as you find it, you're going to have to eat a lot. Um, that's the only reason, by the way, that so many people feel like being too full is a trigger to overeat. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense because being full would mean that you found a food source. Um, so what you want to do is start with something simple, like go to kindergarten before you go to college. Come up with one simple rule that you can and will do. Um you know, like I always put my fork down between bites or I'll never go back for seconds. Or I always take three deep breaths before I begin a meal or I always write down exactly what I'm going to eat within five minutes of the meal. And I stick to my plan. Something that doesn't necessarily restrict what you're eating, but just um, becomes a behavior that you can follow that draws a really clear line. It's not going to be too onerous yet. It's something that you can do, and it's going to make you feel like you're going in the right direction. One, one simple thing. Some people say, I'll never eat after 8 o'clock at night. I hope I won't eat in the bedroom. Um, always brush my teeth and never eat anything after dinner. So one simple rule. One simple rule. And then follow the procedure that I talked to you about and see if you can learn how to play this game. A lot of people tell me with just that one simple tip that their life is totally different than it was before, that they're able to get control they couldn't get before because... See, we're given the wrong advice in the culture. We're told that you should eat well 90% of the time and eat, you know, indulge yourself 10% of the time. But we're not told how to discern which is the 90% and which is the 10%. And if you don't know which is which, then every time you're in front of something delicious, that's another food decision to make. And willpower is the ability to make good decisions. We wear down our willpower over the course of the day with every decision we make, not just food decisions, by the way. Um, we find that, you know, if we have people do math problems, they have trouble resisting mm -hmm. marshmallows afterwards. Um, so, so every kind of cognitive operation, it's like it burns a little bit of your willpower glucose in the brain. So 
take a step, take a step out of your life for five or 10 minutes twice a day and try to put away the electronics and take a couple of breaths and just get away from all the input and decision making. Um, follow one simple rule, use the procedure that we talked about. And, um, you know, take a look at the the things that I have for you to go forward when we get to the end of the interview. Mm -hmm. That's super helpful. And I think even what we've discussed here with it, like your breathing technique and taking notes and identifying with your reptilian brain, your, your, your inner pig, um, that's a super helpful thing. Even if it, all it does is in, give you the opportunity to take a step back and respond rather than react. That, I think that is a huge tool that people can benefit from. And, and, not, and honestly, not just in, not just with food, but in every aspect of your life. Because we exist in the space between stimulus and response. Yes. Right. That's where we make human choices. And so when you take a pause, you take a breath, you're creating a space between human, between um, stimulus and response. You're interfering with the automaticity of the organism and you make choices about who you want to be, how you want to behave, mm -hmm. who you want to become. Yep. I, I think that's it. I think it, take your space is like the, the mic drop space, of man. the episode. Take, take your, your space, space, man. Own your space. <laughs> be comfortable and confident in your space. I love it. Yeah, well, yeah. Glenn, this has been fascinating and, and super helpful for me. And I know there are definitely a lot of people in our space uh, who listen to our podcast who are also bodybuilders who are going to learn a lot from this. All of my clients are going to be listening to this episode. I can promise you that. Um, and I'm definitely going to want to keep in touch with you and, and learn a little bit more about what you have to Please. offer. So I know our listeners will as well. Why don't you give yourself the plug and tell us where we can find you and what you've got going on? Okay. I've got, got three things for you. They're all free. And you head on over to neverbingeagain.com, never binge again, and click the big red button, sign up for the reader bonus list. What you will get is a copy of the book in Kindle Nocropedia format for free. You will get um, a set of recorded coaching sessions. I recorded some full-length coaching sessions because I know you must be thinking, why do Josh, Josh and Travis have this guy on who's got a pig inside of him? It's, <laughs> it's you know, this sounds kind of cold and harsh, but it's actually a very compassionate process. And I wanted you to hear how it works and hear how I could take people from feeling despairing and confused and hopeless to feeling hopeful and excited and um, enthusiastic in just one session. And then I've got a set of food plan starter templates. These are sets of rules that could be met with any dietary philosophy. This program is diet agnostic. Um, I'm, I'm a whole foods, I'm a whole foods person myself, but you know, I work with low carb people. I work with high carb people. I work with vegans, carnivores, uh, point counters, calorie counters. And we set up a bunch of rules as examples that you can modify for yourself. Uh, this is all free. And you can get it at neverbingeagain.com. Please click, click the big red button. I need to practice my diction. Click the big red button. Um, and people ask, you know, about all, all of our other stuff. We have coaching. I've got six other books. We have all kinds of other programs. But um, it's best to start with the free stuff. I love it. Sweet. Well, Glenn, this has been, like I said, phenomenal. And um, to those who are listening, Everything that Glenn's talked about today, uh, I, it highly aligns with what, what I believe in. And um, these are real, real strategies that you can use to overcome your reptilian brain, your inner pig. So uh, I appreciate you sharing them with us, Glenn. It's been an honor. And thank you to everybody who's tuned in to another episode. We will see you all next week. Mm -hmm.